Welcome to another episode of Ed Luminaries with Alejandra Zertuche, CEO of Enflux, who brings you powerful educator perspectives hailing from all walks of life. Get inspired and obtain great takeaways that you can apply to help set your students up for success. Sometimes all it takes is to hear how innovative educators approach similar problems and overcome obstacles to support breakthrough academic success. Hey everyone, thank you for joining us today. I'm Alejandra Certuche and you're listening to the Ed Luminaries podcast where we talk with educational leaders to find out how they're thinking and working creatively to drive student success. In today's episode, The Challenges and Rewards of Leading as a Dean, we're going to hear from Dr. David Mays, Dean at the University of Incarnate Word, Fife School of Pharmacy. Dr. Mays joined the, the Fife School of Pharmacy as faculty and the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and Associate Professor for Pharmaceutical Sciences in 2005. That's when they were planning to start the pharmacy school. And in 2010, he was promoted to Professor of Pharmaceutical Sciences. And from July to October of 2011, he served as acting dean and became dean in January to 20, oh my God, 2017. It feels like it was yesterday, Dr. Mays. Became dean in 2017 upon the retirement of our founding dean, Arcelia Johnson Fanny. And I know a lot of you know that I used to work at the University of, of Incarnate Word. I, I, I joined the Fike School of Pharmacy as a data operator when I was doing my MBA in, in September of 2010, graduated from my MBA and joined the team as their director of assessment. It was senior analyst of academic assessment. And Dr. Mays was my boss, the best boss and mentor that I have ever had. And he still is oh. one of my greatest mentors. <laughs> so Dr. Mays, thank you. Thank you so much um, for joining me today. It is an honor to have this conversation with you. Oh, well, thank you for asking me. You know, we met, I can't believe, I was going through my LinkedIn trying to figure out when exactly did I... Um, joined uh, the Fife School of Pharmacy as a data operator when, when I was doing my MBA. And I couldn't believe that it was in September of 2010. That's like so many years ago. And I still remember my interview going into the room, you walked in, you're like, okay, show me your spreadsheets. What can you do with data? <laughs> yes, that's true. It, it uh, seems like a long time ago and it just, um, amazes me how you started out as a work study and they gave you a project to take numbers off of a PDF and put them into an Excel sheet so we could analyze them. And that was the, the beginning of your educational analysis. And then um, you got your MBA, like you said, and then that came over to us as a real employee um, and we just developed things as we went, you know, we would look at data and said, how can we present this the best way so people will understand it? So we drew pictures on the whiteboard and all kinds of different things. And you go back and work your magic with Excel and then Tableau and all those kind of things. So, you know, it was a fun part and I was very disappointed 
when <laughs> I became dean, and I think you were the first one who says, um, I'm leaving. <laughs> I thought, oh, the school is going to fall apart. What am I going to do without Alejandro a new assessment? But um, we continued yeah. on. And yeah, then, yeah, course, yeah. I'm so, you know, thinking that you started as a work study. And now you're at the level of when I went to your um, dinner for 40 under 40 in San Antonio. <laughs> it's just an amazing um, directory that you've had in your career. Well, it takes it takes a team and a team. It's it's composed of family, friends, mentors like you. I learned so much about assessment and accreditation uh, with your guidance and your mentorship. Um, I always tell investors that the way I found out how the problem existed with assessment and accreditation was that when when I started working with you, you explained to me how like the schools, the creditors were asking for more data, data evidence, right? Like, okay, I hear you, I know what your plan is or what your processes are, but where's the evidence? Where's the data that is saying that you're doing it? Show me the process. And I remember that the first project was getting PDFs. There were, um, it was the ASAP exam, the end of the year assessment the students will take. I would take each of those exams and then type in Excel if they got the question right or wrong so that we could create a report card by categories. That's before we implemented ExamSoft. And yeah. then I started asking questions about like, but why are we doing it from a PDF to an Excel? Well, let me take a look at the system. Let me see how I can extract the, the data from the system. And we were able to extract the data and created, um, it was access, creative reports and access yeah. uh, for the students year over year. And then we implemented ExamSoft and we were successful at fully implemented ExamSoft across the programs. I don't know if you remember that. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. Um, it it's, was so different from um, your data entry where you had to put it in by hand until we moved to ExamSoft and we could just pull it out, the data that we had. And there was so much more data that we could do. And you were right when um, the ACPE, the accreditors of pharmacy, you know, said, okay, how are you assessing your outcomes? Um, you know, what are you doing? And, you know, we worked up a plan that was fantastic. And you had made up um, tables and you were the first time that the accreditors allowed um, for you to give a demonstration to them. They never allow that. And you gave a quick demonstration on how the tables uh, could work and you could filter the data and find out how students are doing. And they were so very impressed. Um, you know, we were the leaders of assessment at that point. I'll never forget that moment that you came to my office super excited and say, guess what, Alejandra, you can present tomorrow. You have like five minutes to present your work. They never allow that, but they will love to see your work. And I was so nervous. I was like, how am I going to do that? 
I'll never forget that feeling of being, it was like, I mean, the audience, why the accreditors, they're all sitting in front of you. It feels like you're delivering your thesis or something like that. And I only had five minutes and I was so nervous. And I'll never forget that they kept asking questions as if like, are you going to keep doing this forever? And how long does it take you? And I was like, well, yeah, of course I can keep doing this forever. And they were like, no, because we want you to keep doing this for faculty. This is great information. And I remember it was um, it was how to review or how to identify questions that need to be reviewed. So it was a scatter plot with the point by serial and percent of students that answer correctly. And how do we, because at that time, now we're creating action plans in Influx, but at that time I would create an email that would tell faculty, this is how your students are doing. These students are at risk. This is what's going on in the questions. It was like a, like a course analysis, almost like a financial analysis, but a course analysis. Um, and it was, it was taking a lot of time, but it was worth it. Yeah. And, and, and I'll never forget that feeling that you, you do it because it's exciting, it's engaging. You release that report and then faculty will come back to the office asking for more. So then I would get in trouble myself and get myself to do more and more work. <laughs> yes, the, the quadrants that we made um, were eye-opening to the faculty because faculty would just look at their point by serial and the percent, um, the percent that uh, got the question right but they never saw it in a four section um, where we had section that had uh, four by serial and four number of people getting it. And they would then have the knowledge to rewrite their questions to try to move it up to a better section where a, they had a higher point by serial which means you can tell the difference between those that are guessing and those are that know the material and a high number of um, passing on the question. So that was very exciting. And yes, you had too many people come into your office. I had quite a problem getting you to finish a project because you would always go off on a tangent on a different yeah. type of project. And it's like, yeah. wait, we were supposed to do this. And <laughs> you were off on three different projects by that time. Yeah, like the ACP surveys. Like, yeah. oh my God, how long did it take us to deliver the first report? Um, yeah. Yeah. In the write-up, it, it was a lot, a lot of work. And that's why when I talk to the team and they tell me like, okay, this is what we're committing on building. It's like, okay. Let's make sure we have a sketch and that we have an agreement on, on what we're going to work because I know what it is like to get off the tangent and go and do more stuff. Um, so we agree in deliverables. But Dr. Mace, I have known you for now, what is it, 11 years. Yeah. Um, I know a lot about your passion and why you join, um, why you're pursuing a career in academia, but I would love the listeners to learn more about that. Um, can you share with the listeners what makes you passionate about education? Well, I'm passionate about education for a few things. One is that um, light bulb moment when you're explaining something that you know the students have no idea about, and then they get it, and then they can apply it 
and then they think about how they apply it and they go, oh, so that's why grandma takes this drug because it works this way. So they have these, these moments and um, you know, it really makes them, them feel good. I'm really passionate about education when I get to see them practice. And they're behind the counter or they're in the hospital or clinical pharmacist. And they're so professional and helping so many people that, you know, it really, really gives me the passion to continue to teach. And I had one um, teacher when I was in pharmacy school and said that, you know, as a teacher, um, I teach a class and that class may make remember one thing that I said, but they're going to run into 10,000 patients in their career. So you have exponentially helped millions of people when only your students remember one thing. Absolutely. That's so powerful. And I've seen your Instagram. I follow you on Instagram and you're going around the pharmacist um, trying to see where the alumni is. And it's fascinating. Can you tell us about that, those encounters? Oh, I just love um, going out and uh, taking pictures of alumni. And I just go, it takes a like a Saturday afternoon and I just stop at every pharmacy and see if there's a UIW um, graduate. And then we take a picture together and they're so excited. They think, you know, say, I can't believe the Dean came out and took a picture with me. And, you know, it's my excitement um, to see them practice and to see them being actual pharmacists. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not, it isn't a task. It's something that's fun to do. I love it. Sometimes I recognize some of those faces because they were students when I was at, at, at the program. And it's fascinating to see how they look so professional and, and happy with their job. And, and it's just fascinating. And then I see where you go and it's like, oh my God, so Sarah is in this pharmacy. I found one of our alumni at, um, across the street from my place. Oh. Um, and I would keep going and saying, hopefully today I'll see her and then I'll see her today because she was always behind. Um, you know, like they have their own room and they were not by the cashier area. And I was like, hopefully one day. And one day before moving out of that um, area, I was like, can you please call Sarah? I would love to tell Sarah that I used to come here for a year looking forward to seeing her. Um, and it was fascinating, it's awesome. Um, you know, I had a podcast with a director of a physician assistant program, and he was talking about how some of the challenges as director of Dean is to find people that are, in your case, pharmacists, but also passionate about teaching and know how to teach. He said, I can take anyone that doesn't have the teaching skills, but they're passionate about students and help them develop those skills. But finding someone with those, with kind of the combination of, of that passion and skills is really hard. Would you say that that's a common challenge that the pharmacy programs are facing? Um, there could, there's a bit of problem. Um, now, we, um, you know, they have to in interview to get in and they have a, uh, you, you know, we have, we 
test their their communication skills right from the beginning. So they have to have good communication skills to get into the pharmacy. And then we keep building and building um, their communication skills while they're here. And when they get out, and I can tell you personally as a pharmacist, you're nervous as hell um, when you speak to your first few patients because it's like, uh, what am I? What am I going to say? Am I going to say something wrong? And so you're scared about that. What I think the problem with pharmacy today is, is that the pharmacist does not get to speak to another. That if you ever see a pharmacist, they're stuck behind that computer. They're verifying prescriptions to make sure that you're got the right prescription and it was safely dispensed. They're also dealing with insurance companies and all, and other pharmacies and all kinds of things. And they're not using their communication skills that they so badly wanted. Um, and this has increased over time. I'm lucky when I practiced pharmacy many years ago, um, I practice pharmacy now for 30 years. Um, you know, we only, we used to only get about a hundred prescriptions. So I could go out into the aisles and help people pick over-the-counter medication. Um, so that was the excitement of my day, not seeing that there were 30 tablets in a bottle, um, but going out there and speaking to people. How can, how can the students or the, the future pharmacists obtain that skill of feeling more comfortable speaking out, having better communication with the client, with the customers, um, with the patients. Is there something that they need to, to, to go the extra mile to do and make sure they do? Or is it something that the organizations like the pharmacy, the CVS, the Walgreens, they need to change to allow them to interact more with patients? Uh, it's both. Um, that the pharmacist needs to practice. And the more that you speak with people, uh, the more comfortable you become uh, speaking to them. And you're right, the other part is a restructuring of the um, chain industry, that the, your metrics that you're, you're based on is how many prescriptions you've got and not how many people you've talked to. So they need to try to get the pharmacists away from that computer and get them to, um, or get them to the counter where they can interact with the patients. So um, my original question was, this is a great topic, but I was wondering if you have those pharmacists that decide to teach at a pharmacy program, how do, how do you take them, how do you, how do you help them and empower them to teach, right? Because if they don't have the communication skills or they don't know teaching, they know everything about pharmacy, but how do you empower them to teach efficiently? Well, for, for faculty, you know, we're just not taking uh, pharmacists off the street. Um, mm -hmm. They have to be specially educated. So with their special education, they have a tendency to be able to teach better than you will get 
with a pharmacist but didn't have the extra education. And the extra education would be like when they do residencies and yeah, when they it. do two-year residencies, they do lots of presentations, and you know they have to um, speak with research and do research and you know present research and things like that. Hey, remember the story of of you and me, and they asked you to do a presentation at the ACPE meeting, and you were nervous wrecked to stand up there and talk about your assessment to a full room of people. We thought, oh, seven people are gonna show up. And it was like 35, <laughs> 50, it was standing room only. And they um, loved it, asked you questions and slipped you business cards. And I said, you're not giving me. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, remember when they asked that question of saying, uh, will you consider, do you have any questions? And someone said, will you consider changing employers? <laughs> and you're like, absolutely not. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, I think it's something that you learn as, as your practice. Um, as you need to feel comfortable doing it. I was so nervous with the first presentations, and it would take me months to prepare one of those. And I would just, like, it was nonstop thinking about it. And now I'm doing podcasts, I'm doing presentations, and it doesn't take me as much as it used to before. And I love it. I, it's just fascinating. Um, but those, I, I'll never forget that that you told me, Alejandra, you need to apply. You need to submit an abstract. And don't worry about it. Only a few people get accepted. And then the next thing I know, I got accepted and you were really excited for me. And I'm like, no, don't be excited. Let's get excited after I'm done with the presentation. I was like, <laughs> uh, those were wonderful moments. Um, Dr. Mays, what... What are the challenges that pharmacy schools are facing um, besides like preparing the students um, with what, what now they call the soft skills, right? Uh, preparing the students with soft skills so that they can communicate better with the patients. Um, but what are some of the challenges that we had before COVID? And once, what, are those challenges changing with COVID or have they just create or do we have new challenges? Well, pre-COVID, pre you know, you just had your regular um, challenges that we would consider normal. Um, probably the biggest challenge that we had was that there was a decrease in the number of pharmacist positions. So that was really affecting um, pharmacy schools because if students didn't think they could find jobs, then they didn't apply to pharmacy schools. So our, our applicants had fallen um, a lot. Now, post-COVID, um, since they've been given a lot of abilities um, during COVID, that it, the pool is actually rising again for applicants because they can see what applicants are, they see themselves as, as pharmacists and what they can do. Pharmacists cannot, do not practice at the top of their license. There is so much more that, that we can do. Let me give you an example. Um, it's called test and treat. Um, we teach students how to test and treat. And I'll give you the example of strep throat. 
So you walk into a pharmacy and you get a strep throat test. If it turns out positive, then the pharmacist can give you the antibiotics to, to cure the strep throat. If it comes out negative, that means it's probably vile and will tell you to you know, go to bed, sleep, orange juice, all that kind of stuff. But we can't do that, even though it's taught in school. And it's because our legislators won't allow us to do it. They're preventing us from, from um, practicing at the top of our license, which would make such a big difference. And I think would um, if, if pharmacists could do that, I think we'd have a large, again, influx of pharmacists into, into the school. You have to remember that someday it has to happen that pharmacists are going to be, become a primary care provider. 90% of America lives within five miles of the pharmacy. So we can easily treat people without them having to travel large distances or waiting um, and taking time off from, from their job. Think, you know, your job, a, farm, or a doctor's office is open nine to five. So you yeah. can take off time off and they're never on time. So yeah. you wait, you know, but pharmacies are open seven days a week, you know, nine to nine, sometimes, sometimes 24 hours. So the availability of a pharmacist is so much greater than it is to a physician. That would be so wonderful because you, you just like, that happens to me all the time. If I want to see the doctor, I always tell them, do you have anything available? Like first thing in the morning, I want to be the first patient because I don't want to sit down there waiting forever. That's one. And the second one is, I feel like we tend to, when we get sick, because we want to avoid going to see the doctor and waiting and all of that will be just like, ah, it's fine. It's going to go away. For instance, COVID, right? If you get a cold or a flu symptoms, you're like, it's fine. It's going to go away because you're trying to avoid all of that. Yeah. But if it's within five miles and you can just walk in and get someone to see what your symptoms are and do the, what you call the te testing and treatment, yeah, that would be wonderful. Yeah. Is there hope for legislature to pass something and allow pharmacists to do that? Yes, um, there are states in the United States, I think about over 20 that allow pharmacists to do that. It's just moving Texas. Um, in that direction. Yeah, it's it, that would be wonderful, Dr. Mays. Why do you, what do you find in your role rewarding? What what do you find your role as dean rewarding? Well, really, I find what's rewarding is the students that I get to graduate. It's all about the students. Um, and my favorite days, of course, uh, graduation when, I, when they walk across the stage. And we have a large number of first-generation students, meaning that none of their family has ever gone to college. And now they're coming across the stage and they are doctors. And the family and the student is so excited because no one has ever gotten a college education. So, you know, that's what uh, is really rewarding. And there's another thing that's called social mo uh, mobility. 
And if the student hadn't become a pharmacist, then they probably wouldn't be making the salary that they're making now. So we've elevated their social position um, by giving them a great healthcare profession um, than, than you would see in some of the other places they will work for or their family members. So the ability to give social um, mobility is, is really great. So that's what I'm really excited about. That is extremely excited, exciting. Uh, what advice would you give someone uh, wanting to pursue a career similar to, similar to yours? Uh, <clears throat> you mean in academia? In academia and that went through like associate dean and, and then became dean. Well, you have to get, a, excuse me, you have to get a lot of education. Um, I went to I went to school for 10 years um, consecutively to get my PhD. But you can also get your funding with your residency um, and become come into academia. But there's probably three things: education, surrounding yourself with the right people like you, and um, being in the right place at the right time. And those three things are probably the recipe to be able to come um, to a level of review. That's absolutely right. It's, I always tell people that um, I, when, when I met you and when we, we met at the interview, it was at the right place at the right time with the right skills. And it was just perfect. It was a match made in heaven, right? You had a lot of data issues and, and I had, I was a data nerd. Now they call us data scientists. I always tell people <laughs> that, uh, big promotion. But I mean, my title was data operator. Uh, that tells you how people thought about data um, 10 years ago. Um, but that's fascinating. What, in, in your own words, what does student success means to you? Um, what student success means to me is first passing the boards, um, <laughs> then uh, getting a job. Um, but what I love um, to see is um, when I'm on Facebook and I get to see the pictures of the first house or the first baby or the first car. You know, that is what success is, is to me, that they, they've come out of pharmacy school and they've made a, a really good life for themselves. Dr. Mace, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, where can our listeners connect with you if they have any questions? Uh, well, they could email me. Um, my email is maize, M-A-I-Z-E, at U-I-W-T-X, as in texas.edu, or I can be found on Facebook under Dr. David Mays, and Dr. and David are connected. Or you can find me on Instagram as uh, Dr. Period David F. Mays, and you can follow me on Instagram. I love social media, so I'm always... I can... <laughs> 
We need to have a conversation about LinkedIn. <laughs> That's the next I one. I know. I'm really bad at LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> we, we need to have a conversation about LinkedIn. Yes. Um, but thank you so much for joining me today. Um, thank you for, for listening to today's series on the challenges and rewards of leading as a dean. You can subscribe to our events by going to influx.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn where we post announcements about our solutions and resources like today's session. I'm Alejandra Sertuche, and you have been listening to Ed Luminaries. You've just listened to Ed Luminaries, inspiring stories and ideas from educators to educators with Alejandra Zertuche. Connect with us at edluminaries.com to join the conversation and access the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.